Appamada's programmes and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much. So welcome back. And this is uh, the Forms of Meditation class six. And we have one more class next week. Uh, we've been looking at the Buddha's teachings on meditation from a relational perspective. So we first practiced meditation of the breath and body and emotions and foundations of mindfulness to establish our relationship with ourselves. We then moved last week to the practice of investigation of dharmas, the Buddha's teachings. The Buddha was not anti-intellectual. He encouraged the use of the mind to test the wisdom of his dharma teachings against one's own intelligence and experience. Through our practice of investigation of the dharmas, we strengthen our relationship not only with the teachings of the Buddha, but with the Buddha himself, just as if he were standing before us. Our trust in him and our trust in his teachings deepens and we find ourselves profoundly enriched by these treasures, by their wisdom and compassion and clarity. So I'd like to say a little bit about what exactly these forms of concentration meditation offer us more generally. They are the training par excellence for our attention. So I've been struck on, by the research on attention reading Peak Mind by Amisha P. Ja. Some of you may know this, uh, this book. Uh, she's a professor of psychology and director of contemplative neuroscience at the University of Miami. For decades, she's been leading research on the neural basis of attention. Her whole career has been the study of attention and the effects of mindfulness-based training programs on cognition, emotion, and resilience. So to me, it's remarkable how Western science continues to discover and validate what the Buddha taught 2,500 years ago. Dr. Jha's research has identified three forms of attention, which she calls the flashlight, the floodlight, and the juggler. The flashlight, as you can imagine, is focused attention, as when we're working on a task or noticing some particular thing, the bright flash of a bird, the expression on someone's face, a story we're reading. The range of attention is narrow. The floodlight is, as you might expect, broad, as when we are simply walking in the woods or entering a room full of strangers. The juggler is the mover of the attention, managing the shifts from focus to broad, shifting our attention where it's needed. So over millennia, we've evolved these capacities for paying attention as survival strategies. Dr. Jha does not believe, strangely enough, that we are more distracted now or that our technologies have somehow impaired our capacities of attention. This is one of the surprises in her research. Our main problem is that our attentional faculties are untrained and so unreliable and unsteady. Because of evolutionary limits to our short-term memory, as well as our survival need to constantly move our attention towards a strange sound, a food source, a flash of movement that might signal danger or nourishment, our attention must necessarily fluctuate. In her work, Dr. Jha has studied many of our myths about attention, many of our attempts to manage our attention, from to-do lists, to computer brain games, to project management systems, to phone apps. She studied what happens when we remove distractions from the environment 
and when we try, really try to focus on a task? The short answer, a spoiler alert, is that none of these methods work. Our brains are simply evolved to process the world by scanning, by constantly evaluating our environment, by responding to our inner felt sense. In other words, by constant movement of our attention. She's been particularly interested in the effects of stress on those in crisis situations, active military, first responders, new parents. Ultimately, she began to wonder whether attention could be shaped at all or whether we're doomed to make bad decisions under pressure, neglect important tasks through distraction and daydreaming and miss the actual experiences we truly want to be present for. Could attention itself be trained so that we can manage it wisely and skillfully. There is one way, one thing, and one thing only that she's discovered in her research that can serve to train attention, mindfulness meditation. At first she was resistant to this discovery, but her research and that of many others now confirms it using all of the scientific methods to evaluate and verify it. As you might imagine, the military was quite skeptical but ultimately, they agreed to test it on soldiers who were deploying for war. And this was, I thought this was really an interesting feature of the study. So as a good scientist, she has um, a control group and an experimental group. So the control group was taught um, mindfulness meditation, or the experimental group was taught mindfulness meditation. And the control group was given relaxation exercises to practice. So then they were deployed. And then they were tested to see how their um, cognitive capacities function, how they were able to keep their attention. And she found something really baffling in her data, which was that the control group was actually faring slightly better than the experimental group. And they'd only been given relaxation exercises. She was so puzzled by this that she called the woman who was directing those troops when they were uh, deployed and asked about it. And the woman just laughed and she said, well, as it turns out, when the people in the control group found out how well the people in the experimental group were faring here, they asked me to send them the exercises for mindfulness practice. And they began practicing the mindfulness exercises. So that's why they were doing so well. So uh, over and over again, with such large scale experiments on different populations, Dr. Jha saw the same results. Attention could be trained and furthermore, it was not difficult. Regular meditation practice is like any other form of exercise, only instead of building muscles, it builds the mind's capacity to manage attention skillfully and intentionally, whether it is the focused flashlight form of attention, the open floodlight form of attention, or the juggler managing the coordination of intention. Dr. Ja provides a training sequence in the book that can be practiced in 12 minutes a day. We like to recommend 30 minutes of meditation a day, but it's heartening that her subjects could see results even in such a short practice. So I recommend the book for anyone interested in the scientific findings about research on attention. It's not an academic book but it's intended for a general audience. So it's full of engaging stories that illustrate her discoveries and their application. What we attend to forms the fabric of our experience. It is simple, 
yet we seldom question what we are paying attention to and its impact on our minds, our bodies, our well-being, and our relationships. These forms of meditation we have been exploring are an exercise program for our attention, not as ends in themselves, but to support us in living our lives with ease and vitality and warm connections with others. It's not uh, our goal to become good professional meditators. Meditation practice is not a way of rigidly fixing our attention at will, but of patiently training our attention as we would a puppy with affection and care so that it can serve our lives well. But our attention is not simply an activity of our mind, the searchlight of an active brain. It is also a heart connection, the expression of our deep abiding care in relationships with all that is. The greatest gift we can give anyone, but especially those we care for, is our full attention. So today we'll be looking at the practices of loving kindness or metta, lojong training from Tibetan Buddhist teachings and the Brahma Viharas. So some of you are very familiar with these practices um, and, and uh, it's uh, unusual for us to consider them as practices in uh, training attention. But these are forms of meditation directed toward our connection with others and train our attention, flashlight, floodlight or juggler as a form of care. They are often referred to as compassion practice, but there's a warning label on these forms of meditation. Sometimes practitioners take up these practices because they believe they need to become more kind or somehow train themselves to be more compassionate. They bark at their kids, they find themselves furious in traffic, they notice they don't really care about the problems of their colleagues at work. They resent the care needed by aging parents. Ugh. If only they could be more willing to care. The answer seems to be working to improve through compassion practices. But that is not what these practices are for. They are not a method for becoming a better self, a kinder self, a more compassionate self, a more patient self, an ideal self. This is a self's agenda designed to relieve our anxiety and critical judgments of ourselves and by extension judgments of and comparisons with others. We want to be blameless in the eyes of the world. We actually believe that this is one of our noble qualities, striving to be good. Please don't do this. <clears throat> Setting up ideals and struggling to achieve them is a special recipe for suffering. <clears throat> we're always falling short of the mark always trying to do better always moving the goal posts worst luck yet clinging to our ideals degrades our experience of the present moment we long for a magical future when we will realize our project of becoming an ideal self such beliefs are painful not only for ourselves but for those who care about us Joko always kicked the props out of any notion of ideals. So as we embark on this week's study of compassion practices, what are they for? What is the point if we're not training ourselves to be more compassionate, more patient with others, more attentive to their needs, kinder human beings? I think compassion practices are a form of rest. 
in which our attention is trained in connecting with the compassion and care that is our inherent being. In the classic definition of sati, mindfulness, is recalling, recalling who we are. As we are profoundly compassionate beings, we practice simply allowing our attention to notice this. We are tra training ourselves to return to that which is the truest expression of our care and concern for our own selves, for others, and for our world. That compassion does not depend on the suffering of others. For example, we feel it for our children, even when they're happily at play. It is a tender regard that is intimately connected with well-being, happiness, and joy, regardless of the circumstances. But of course, we forget. Under stress, under distraction, under threat, under exhaustion. These conditions, Dr. Jha discovered, impact our capacity to attend to what is most important, which is that our lives are passing by, mostly without our noticing. So regular exercise of the faculty of attention is necessary if we want to truly live our lives rather than passing through them with little awareness. There are wrenching stories in the book about parents attending their child's soccer matches or dance performances while preoccupied with thoughts of work, planning, or often mind-wandering and realizing later that they missed the actual experience itself. How many of us are actively engaged in dissociating from our present moment experience, no matter how meaningful this way? I was reminded of, um, I don't know if you all know this uh, series from quite a long time ago, probably sometime in the 80s, of Dr. Katz's therapist. Um, so Dr. Katz was a therapist. It's, this was an animated series who, um, whose clients were all stand-up comedians. So. Uh, so Ray Romano comes in to see Dr. Katz and he says, I went to the opera last night, doc. Dr. Katz says, oh, how was that? I was sitting there thinking, look how much work it takes to bore me. So this is our, this is our quality of being, right? Much of the time. Um, so compassion practices are first of all, a way of bringing attention to what matters most so that we can open our vast inexhaustible hearts and minds to ourselves and to others. This takes practice. And naturally we will find arising all of the hindrances the Buddha talked about, sense desires, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, doubt. Fortunately, because of our earlier classes, we're now skillful in recognizing them as the hindrances they are. They can be noted and allowed to release themselves. And we simply return to our training. When you are training a puppy, something I had occasion to do recently, um, as I, um, there are two primary methods. The common method in the past has been to more or less force the puppy to do what you want, punish them when they make a mistake and reward them when they do well. Some of the harsher forms of meditation training seem to be based on this method. But in recent times, dog training has evolved a second method based entirely on positive responses when the puppy even begins to approximate what you want it to do and simply ignoring the mistakes or misses. This approach has found to be, been found to be far more effective and creates happy, 
well-adjusted dogs with much better responses to cues. Well, good for puppies. Their lives are getting much better. But the same applies to training our attention. As we engage in various forms of meditation, the same difficulties arise. Our work is simply to gently return to the practice over and over again without judgment or recrimination. This will happen thousands and thousands of times in a single meditation period. Or maybe that's just me, but that's fine. We're playing the long game. Gradually, we will notice, not necessarily in our meditation practice, but in our lives, which is after all what we are practicing for, a shift in how we meet the difficulties, challenges, and most of all, other people in our world. Maybe you will find that colors seem more vivid, that you are actually tasting your food, that you attune to someone you are talking with, that you enjoy your children more, that somehow, in a moment, you feel content. Still, your life will be filled with distractions, stressors, emotional distress, unexpected events. But somehow, they will not affect you in quite the same way they used to. And you find you recover your basic sanity more easily and quickly. What seems to arise in most people who practice with some regularity is a sense of appreciation for just what is. So, okay, what's on the menu for today? Today, we're focus, we focus on our quality of relating. Now we really are turning our attention to the ways in which we meet others. We'll use our attention to access our heart and its natural, felt wisdom and compassion. So in Training in Compassion, um, Norman Fisher's book on the Lojong teachings, he writes, I wanna read this to you because I think this is such a great introduction. And because it's still true. So this book was published in um, 2012. A lot of things hadn't happened yet. But he says, times are tough. We live fast-paced lives with considerable political, economic, and ecological upheaval. And the resultant dread, fear, and stress make life difficult for almost everyone, except possibly those who opt for self-defensive de denial, which only defers the pain and probably makes it worse. But times have always been tough. Living a human life in a human world on a limited planet has always been a daunting proposition. Circling the wagons, assuming a self-centered defensive stance has never been a successful coping mechanism. Natural though the impulse may be. We are programmed by evolution in the opposite way. We are cooperating animals, deeply conditioned to be concerned for one another. Our hearts are made for loving. Compassion and connection not only feel good and right, as all of our religious traditions teach us, they also turn difficulties into opportunities, as we have seen so often, when in the course of seemingly more frequent natural disasters of recent years, neighbors go out of their way to help one another. When they do, tragedy becomes inspirational. Paradoxically, life can seem more rather than less meaningful when our world is suddenly shattered. When we are witness to genuine compassion in the face of great suffering, we seem to transcend our difficulties. 
When we feel like helping, do help, and are helped, we become stronger, happier, more resilient people. Compassion and resilience are not, as we might imagine, rarefied human qualities available only to the saintly, nor are they adventitious experiences that arise in us only in extraordinary circumstances. In fact, these essential and universally prized human qualities can be solidly cultivated by anyone willing to take the time to do it. They can become the way we are and live on a daily basis. We can train our minds. We are not stuck with our fearful, habitual, self-centered ways of seeing and feeling. So I think that's such a sweet way to uh, introduce this uh, training in compassion. And uh, I wanted to talk first about metta practice, um, which many of you are familiar with in various forms we've talked about in our teachings before. So how did the Buddha describe the virtues of this practice? He said, bhikkhus, meant his followers, whatever kinds of worldly merit there are, all are not worth one sixteenth part of the heart deliverance of loving kindness. In shining and beaming and radiance, the heart deliverance of loving kindness far excels them. Just as whatever light there is of stars, all is not worth one sixteenth part of the moons. In shining and beaming and radiance, the moon's light far excels it. And just as in this last month of the rains, in the autumn, when the heavens are clear, the sun, as it climbs the heavens, drives all darkness from the sky with its shining and beaming and radiance. And just as when night is turning to dawn, the morning star is shining and beaming and radiating, so too, whatever kinds of worldly merit there are, all are not worth one sixteenth part of the heart deliverance of loving kindness. In shining and beaming and radiance, the heart deliverance of loving kindness far excels them. This is from the Itivitaka Sutta. So in uh, Loving Kindness, Sharon Salzberg's book, she says the word Pali, the Pali word metta has two meanings. One is the word for gentle. Metta is likened to a gentle rain that falls on the earth. This rain does not select and choose. Rather, it simply falls without discrimination. The other root meaning for metta is friend. To understand the power or force of metta is to understand true friendship. The Buddha actually described at some length what he meant by being a good friend in the world. He talked about a good friend as someone who is constant in our times of happiness and also in our times of adversity or unhappiness. A friend will not forsake us when we are in trouble, nor rejoice in our misfortune. The Buddha described a true friend as being a helper, someone who will protect us when we are unable to take care of ourselves, who will be a refuge to us when we are afraid. So metta is sometimes translated as loving kindness, often times, although as though it is something to do or provide. 
But a better way to think about it is as this quality of unconditional friendliness or benevolence. So it's captured in a chant we do at Apamata, the Metta Sutta. And we can say this together. I'm going to share my screen so you can see. Share screen. Oh, so you can find where it is. Here we go. So this is the way we chanted at Apamata. There are various translations of this Metta Sutta. It's actually not part of Zen practice, but part of Theravada practice. And so the Theravadans will chant this uh, loving kindness meditation. So let's begin. This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright and sincere, without pride, easily contented and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise, but not puffed up. And let one not desire great possessions, even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world. Standing or walking, sitting or lying down, during all one's waking hours, let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites, one who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. <clears throat> I love this uh, chant because it's so all-encompassing. A meta practice as a form of meditation uses special phrases that are gently repeated. They express our aspiration for well-being, peace, and safety, first for ourselves and then for others. So here are the classic phrases um, there in uh, Sharon Salzberg's book. May I be free from danger, May I have mental health, mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. May I be free from danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. So when I be began exploring this practice, I was actually in monastic training then. I had some real difficulty. First of all, the phrases seemed really abstract to me. And I could not bring myself to wish happiness for some people, uncaring politicians, 
cruel dictators, oppressors, child abusers, and so on. I felt that what brought them happiness would result in great suffering for others. What to do? I did want to engage meta practice, but I struggled until I shaped a set of meta phrases I could honestly wish for anyone. And you may find you need to do this too. These phrases, as we commonly teach them at Appamata, are may this body be at ease, may this heart be open, may this mind be boundless, may this being awaken. So yes, that seemed possible to practice with to me. So um, the reason I decided or felt that using this body instead of me or I um, was that it decouples sort of the egoic preoccupation with ourselves and um, connects us with all beings who have bodies, who have hearts, who have minds and who awaken. So that seemed possible. In doing this metta practice for another person, um, you bring them to mind and you think, may your body be at ease, may your heart be open, may your mind be boundless, may we awaken together. And then doing metta for a group, maybe a family or maybe a sangha, we say, may our bodies be at ease, may our hearts be open. May our minds be boundless. May we awaken together. And as we expand this practice beyond just our familiar surroundings and environments and the people around us, may all bodies be at ease. May all hearts be open. May all minds be boundless. May all beings awaken together. My sense of this was that even if someone was cruel or oppressive, if their body was at ease, if their heart was open, if their mind was truly boundless, and if they were awakened, they could no longer be cruel. They could no longer inflict suffering on others. It wouldn't be possible. So that's why I felt this set of phrases um, fit at least my understanding of how I wanted to practice. And I was clear from working with Joko that this was not an attempt to become a better person or to be a more compassionate person, but to extend the compassion already in our hearts to all beings. So this practice is actually a specific relief for anxiety and depression, and even for insomnia. So it's very important when engaging this practice to repeat the metaphrases first for yourself. And uh, in training, in, uh, in our training, we'll often recommend that people use these phrases for themselves for about six months. So that's a pretty long time, but you'll see a lot of uh, development and evolution if you do that. And some of the ways we hold ourselves so tightly begin to loosen. So, <clears throat> So then you can begin to turn towards someone that you cherish or admire, and then someone you feel neutral toward, and then someone perhaps you have some struggle or conflict with, and finally for all beings. So hopefully that practice um, will, would serve you well, and I thought we could have a little opportunity to play with it just a little bit, just for maybe about three minutes. Remember that those phrases are, um, 
May this body be at ease. May this heart be open. May this mind be boundless. May this being awaken. So Flint has a whole little set of hand gestures for this, but we won't do that. We were just gonna, we're just gonna sit and hold those phrases in mind um, while we sit for maybe about, yeah, about three minutes. Um, So um, what did you notice? So if there's something that you'd like to share, please raise your hand so we can, uh, we can share what, uh, what you're discovering in this practice. Even this very short little, little bit of a practice. And it would be good to go into gallery view for questions, for general questions, just so people can see. So you can see that. All right. Okay, Anne. Um, I was noticing how each, um, oops, sorry, I might jump there. Anyway, I noticed how each phrase was um, 
for me set the stage for the next. So my body being at ease and breathe, repeating that and breathing into that. And I would actually feel this body being more at ease. And then, and then that provided this setting for my heart to feel more open. And then for my body being at ease and the, and this heart being more open, it felt like, it felt like there was a doorway to my mind, um, touching into boundlessness. So that's what I, I was really attuned to this time. Yeah, um, you might notice that the, there, this um, set of phrases echoes something we've already studied, right? Yes. The four foundations of mindfulness. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Richie. Yeah, um, I found uh, I actually uh, the phrases uh, I like to let go of them and just just feel um, kind of the feeling itself. Um, just uh, sometimes I find um, words get a bit tiring, so it's quite nice to sort of let go. And then, is it like a feeling in your heart area? Is that it's like a, a warm feeling? Um, and um, I was also wondering what boundlessness means. Mm. Yeah, without boundary, without, without, boundary. without limit. Mm. Okay, thank you. What, what, what limits are mind, do you think? Limits of mind? I don't know, I was thinking about that. It's like, um, does where is where is space is does our skin separate us from space or does space just just do you know what I mean does space occupy this um yeah there's a lot is that boundlessness like infinite space yeah, yeah. exactly yeah and and we um artificially constrain our minds uh, with our conditioning our stories our beliefs our preconceptions about how things are going to turn out our belief, our sort of um, uh, ongoing preoccupation with trying to manage our own perceptions and uh, and fix the world, and so in all of those ways, um, we create um, structures and boundaries um, that the that limit the mind's capacities. They're useful in some ways, but they um, but what we really want to aspire to is the capacity to realize that boundless mind um, and um, to be able to use it beneficially. So, yeah. So you can use your boundless mind to spread meta. Absolutely. Of, uh, everywhere, yeah. So, yes. You're just radiating that. And that's, that's exactly what the Buddha was talking about. You're just radiating it. We'll talk more about that when we get to the Brahma Vihara. So which meta is just the first of the Brahma Viharas. Uh, but it's been pulled out as a focus for uh, for many many practitioners for uh, traditionally for a long long time. Yeah. Well, thanks, Peg. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Yeah. What does it mean to be boundless? So, um, uh, as I was saying, um, this uh, this is a great practice if you happen to have insomnia. You wake up in the middle of the night and you're sort of shaken. Um, you can't get back to sleep. 
um, I will first do meta practice for myself for being awake when I would want to be asleep. Then I do meta practice for everyone who is lying awake at night, just like I'm lying awake at night because their daughter's out late, because they lost their job, because they're, they're struggling with their finances, because their wife has cancer. You know, all of the ways that people lie awake at night, I just do metta for all of those people struggling in the middle of the night. And then I extend the metta to all of the people who care for those people, all those people who are connected to the people who have that same insomnia I'm suffering from. And then it just permeates out from there. And usually by that time, I'm, I'm pretty well fast asleep. Um, so, and I, I think partly because instead of feeling isolated and either frightened or upset or distressed, I feel warmly connected to all the other beings. So, um, so meta practice is a very beneficial practice. And I will say, it's not necessary for you to put a lot of energy behind these phrases. Let them just almost run themselves like a, an engine. Um, they're working all the time uh, on your subconscious and, uh, and sort of shaping your experience in those ways. So you don't, you don't need to focus on them or fasten on them. It's good to reflect on them, just as Richie was talking about what does it mean to have boundless mind? Um, because that engages us uh, in the practice. But, uh, but generally, it's really about um, the repetition of that set of aspirations. So this sort of naturally um, extends into Lojong practice. And Lojong practice is uh, Tibetan-based practice of which there are two forms, um, basically. Um, the first form is giving and receiving practice in which we visualize receiving the suffering of others and giving ease and well-being. So this is a pretty challenging practice, but it's a tremendous heart opener. The basic practice is simply breathing naturally and on the in-breath, take in the suffering of another. On the out-breath, release fresh, clear energy of healing and peace. You may say to yourself, breathing in the pain, breathing out comfort, or whatever words seem appropriate to the situation. We do not want to inhale another's suffering. We just want it to stop. We struggle to stay connected when others are in pain and do our best to dissociate from it much of the time. So this practice turns around and embraces it, inhales it. And this is hard for us, or maybe it's just me. Um, so we begin with ourselves breathing in our own dis-ease, dissatisfaction, irritation, suffering, breathing out whatever is its opposite. This is a good little practice because you'll notice you're upset or distressed about something. You start breathing in, naming what it is. So breathing in irritation, breathing out, then you immediately have to think about what's the opposite of irritation, uh, ease, comfort, whatever, you know, you quickly, because otherwise you're not gonna be able to exhale, right? So it's kind of a good, um, spontaneous kind of practice where you have to be a little bit quick. Um, so it requires our full attention, breathing in anxiety, breathing out ease, breathing in resentment, breathing out acceptance, breathing in boredom, breathing out wonder, and so on. So you need to pay attention to what your actual moment-to-moment -moment experience of distress is and the opposite. 
And this has to happen rather quickly if you don't wanna be holding your breath. Once you've established this practice for yourself, you can turn toward others, beginning with someone you cherish now or in the past. So those of us who have children have all had the experience of the child is sick, very young child is sick, and you wish with all your might that you could be somehow able to take on the sickness for yourself and give them good health. So bringing that person to mind, you can picture them as vividly as you can, just if they were right in front of you, and recognize that they too have suffering and use the breath to take it in, breathing out relief and ease. When you're quite established in this phase, you can turn your attention to someone about whom you feel neutral and practice the same way. So here you may begin to feel a bit of resistance about taking in the suffering of a stranger. So you may need to return to doing this practice for yourself, breathing in your discomfort and resistance, breathing out relaxation and ease. There was years ago, a 14-year-old reincarnated a llama in Los Angeles, whose old, older brother called him Shrimpoche. But I loved what he said in describing this practice. He said, it's like being an air conditioner. It takes in all the bad polluted air and conditions it through its filters, then releases pure clean air. So this is just that breathing in the suffering, breathing out ease and release. Um, breathing in the suffering, and we have to work with our own unwillingness. You know, someone we know has terminal cancer. Do we breathing in terminal cancer? Um, and there's a part of us that is very resistant to breathing in that suffering, um, to actually experiencing it that way internally, not just as something happening to somebody else. So that that's the heart of compassion practice: is to deeply experience the suffering of another and the corollary of uh, sending them ease, release, and relief from suffering. So this giving and receiving is a practice. This is how we continue to practice so that we can enable ourselves to experience that, taking in the suffering of another fully, offering whatever freedom and release we can offer. So this, this is the first form of Lojong practice. The second form of mind training uses phrases, Lojong phrases. So this is training in compassion. So as I mentioned, Norman Fisher's book on this, um, training in compassion, Zen teachings on the practice of Lojong, which isn't a Zen training, but, um, but is uh, an important training in the Tibetan tradition. So Fisher asks, how can we train the mind? He points out that mind, as he means it, is more than intellect. It also includes sensations, emotions, subtle senses of subjectivity, desires, aspirations, attitudes, <clears throat> images, concepts, perceptions, and so on. In a word, mind is consciousness, the sum total of our human experience. And in this sense, mind also includes body. We're conscious of our bodily sensations and our emotions, maybe our thoughts too, and they affect us bodily and vice versa. So in his book, he uses the root text of the seven points of training the mind, which is a text composed in the 12th century in Tibet and a core teaching in that tradition. 
its seven key points are further divided into 59 slogans. I'll post these 59 slogans on the class webpage under handouts, but here are the seven points. One, resolve to begin. Resolve to begin. Two, train in empathy and compassion, absolute and relative compassion. Three, transform bad circumstances into the path. Four, make practice your whole life. Five, assess and extend. Six, the discipline of relationship. And seven, living with ease in a crazy world. So it's kind of funny to imagine someone living in 12th century Tibet who imagined this, this would be one of our key issues, living with ease in a crazy world. But as it turns out, it is. So Fisher says, like bumper stickers or advertising taglines, slogans are short, punchy phrases that make an immediate impression. Like a catchy tune, they are easy to remember, think about, and stay with. He describes this technique as simple. Sitting calmly with breath and body awareness, simply repeat the slogan silently to yourself again and again. Reflect lightly on it. Breathe in with the inhale, out with the exhale. The point is not to sit and think about the slogan as much as to develop, an all, develop it as an almost physical object. After this initial fixing of the slogan in the mind, you can think about it more, journal about it, talk about it with friends, write it down, repeat it to yourself, maybe when you're walking or driving or anytime you remember to do it, committing yourself to holding it in your mind during the day as often as you can. So he says, which slogan should you practice with and how long should you stay with any one slogan? There's no real right answer, really. Be serious, attentive, and flexible. It is most important to keep the practice lively, disciplined, but lively. He suggests that you do not take up the slogans in order, but pick one that jumps out at you for some reason, one that seems particularly relevant for the conditions of your life right now, even if you don't know exactly why. Once you find a slogan you want to work with, stay with it for a while, weeks, months, even years. So we're gonna try this out, uh, this uh, Lojong slogan. Um, and um, we're gonna settle into mindfulness. And for today, consider the first slogan, which is <clears throat> under resolve to begin. The first slogan is train in the preliminaries. So often we want to rush ahead in our lives and our, in our practice, arrive at some future moment faster, some moment of awakening or accomplishment or approval or whatever. So there are four points that constitute training in the preliminaries through systematic reflection on the rarity and preciousness of a human life, how rare it is that we even have this life and how precious it is. Two, the inevitability of death. Three, the awesome and indelible power of our actions. And four, the inescapability of suffering. So make yourself comfortable and upright for sitting in a dignified way. Bring your awareness to your breathing. Let's rise and fall. 
and gradually expand your awareness to your whole body. Resolve to begin. Now, bring to mind the slogan, train in the preliminaries. Just notice everything that arises as you focus your attention on this slogan. Questions, ideas, stories, distractions. And as in any concentration practice, gently and easily return to the slogan as you notice your mind wandering. Just train in the preliminaries.
Did you notice anything? <clears throat> anything you'd like to report? Yeah, Kim. To do stone lithography. And in, in stone lithography, you grind the stone and you use this succession of course to find carborundum. And I always would try to do that the day before I actually drew on it. And the same with preparing a canvas. And if you do it right, it takes uh, you know quite a long time and you have to let it dry. But um, there's something so different than if someone does that for you or you buy a prepared canvas, you haven't, um, you haven't uh, kind of deserved to draw on it. And the drawing kind of arises from the time when you first start handling it. And then I started thinking about going into the Zendo and um, you know, signing our name now on our sheet and washing our hands and then bowing to the room. And actually, maybe there's no beginning for the preliminaries. You know, they're all, it's all part of the action, but skipping that first step, uh, we're kind of uh, blind. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's such a great one because we Americans don't like to be slowed down. You know, we don't like to bother with the preliminaries. Um, we, we'd like to just skip over that. Or we think they're not important. So all those little things, writing down your name, washing your hands, are not prior to your meditation practice. They are actually the beginning of it. So, yeah. So there's no, there's actually no nothing prior, everything is, uh, is in this category of preliminary. Everything is preliminary to something else, right? I mean, we go to preschool, that's a preliminary to going to kindergarten. And that's, that's sort of a preliminary to being a big kid going to elementary school. And that's to prepare you to go to middle school so that you can then be prepared to go to high school and, and high school is preliminary to college. So although high school might seem like uh, the outcome it's, it's not really, right? So, so a, a good question is, um, what preliminaries are we actually training in? Moment to moment, right? What, is it, what are the causes and conditions that are arising out of our activity? Thinking, speaking, acting. Um, everything is preliminary to the next moment. So I love those um, four remembrances um, that, uh, that are teachings in the uh, beginning of this, um, this sense of the rarity and preciousness of human life, the inevitability of death, the awesome and indelible power of our actions and the inescapability of suffering. Um, those are all part of training in the preliminaries. So yeah, that awareness. So even just this first slogan is very um, pregnant with possibilities, right? For discovery. And if you stay with it, yeah, Laurie. I was just gonna say that's the, what, the one that caught my attention while we were sitting and um, I, somebody just passed um, last evening. Um, and so that, I guess, suppose that's why it's particularly on my mind, but it's kind of on my mind anyway about, mm -hmm. you know, people that I know 
that time will go by and I don't connect with them. And, and I'm 65 and some of the people I know are older than that. And it's just, we need to, or I need to be more aware of that because I will really regret this time that I haven't spent with these people that I really care for greatly. So. Oh, and give, and even when we're with them, sometimes we don't give them our full attention, right? That's true too. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the training. The training is the training in preliminaries. And I think um, it's heartening to me that it's possible to train, you know, we're not just absent-minded or forgetful or and distracted or whatever, that we have the capacity to train this faculty and to engage with in our relationships in this way. So yeah. that's, that's part of why I think this is really the training and compassion. And um, this, you'll see uh, when you look at the other slogans, um, how engaging they are, you know, um, Maria has been working with the one don't be predictable, right? And, <laughs> and how interesting that is, you know, what does that mean? And how do, how do you not be predictable? And um, it certainly means being aware of what, uh, what is predictable in your thoughts and words and actions. It, it, so, seems, it seems that all of these, the basis of all of these is, is the awareness. I mean, that's yeah. the central, central point. Yeah, and it's a, it's, it's, uh, it not only requires awareness, but it's also a training in awareness. So we begin to see these slogans permeating our lives in other ways, you know, in, in other parts of our lives, they start to show up. Um, and I, I find that really interesting. Um, they, uh, they serve a lot like koans um, to um, break up our habitual ways of thinking about things and the stories and uh, beliefs and structures and everything that, um, that feel sort of cemented in place sometimes. So I like that about uh, this you know, Lojong slogans. So any other thoughts about that practice, questions about it? Uh, again, this is, um, uh, this is a practice of actually, um, you know, using the intellect in a way to sort of um, as a kind of lever for opening awareness and awake, awakening our hearts. So the third thing I wanted to talk about today is about the Brahma Viharas. This is one of my absolutely favorite practices and I'll often practice it um, if I'm in some kind of distress or upset. The Brahma Viharas are sometimes also called the divine abodes. Um, and they're um, qualities of mind, not um, things to do. So the first one we've already met is metta, unconditional friendliness. The second Brahmavihara is karuna, which is compassion, which as Analeo teaches is untainted by sorrow. It's the profound experience of suffering coupled with the commitment to its relief. Mudita is empathetic joy, the capacity to delight, genuinely delight in others' happiness. Um, and then, and the, and the wonderful gift of upeka or mudita is that your own happiness thereby is expanded, right? You have more opportunities to be happy than if you just are concerned with your own happiness, right? So whenever somebody's happy, you've expanded your happiness quotient. 
So upeka is equanimity, which is not the equanimity of a stone or a stoic, but the ability to stay settled in our deepest aspiration, no matter what the circumstances. So the Buddha's uh, uh, teachings, I'll just give you the first part of this, uh, the part about metta. The Buddha taught, this is an Anguttara Nikaya, here bhikkhus, a certain person abides with his heart imbued with loving kindness, extending over one quarter, likewise the second quarter, likewise the third quarter, likewise the fourth quarter, and so above, below, around, and everywhere. And to all as to himself, he abides with his heart abundant, exalted, measureless in loving kindness, without hostility or ill will, extending over the all-encompassing world. He finds gratification in that, or she, finds it desirable and looks to it for his well-being. Steady and resolute thereon, he abides much in it. And if he dies without losing it, he reappears among the gods of a high divinity retinue, radiating as the sun radiates, illuminating all without discrimination, without concern for results or outcomes, naturally and effortlessly. In this, there is ease and simplicity. So the same applies to all four of the Brahmaviharas, similarly radiating out. In this practice, the practice is to establish mindfulness and then to radiate each of these Brahmaviharas in the four cardinal directions, the four intermediate directions, above, below, and all around, just radiating. Note that these are not directed toward anyone or anything. There's no object. They're pure radiation without limit or discrimination. Just sitting in this way is to inhabit the abode of the gods. So Analeo recommends um, a particular practice, for example, for compassion, he writes, for formal meditation, I suggest employing whatever image or phrase we might find useful to stimulate compassion as a starting point. But then proceed from such practice to letting go of such supports and just dwell on the mental attitude of compassion. In this way, from doing compassion as a starting point, we move on to just being in the mental condition of compassion and allow it to become boundless. The condition of boundlessness is achieved simply by not consenting to any boundary becoming a limit to our compassionate disposition. This is such an important sentence. The condition of boundlessness is achieved simply by not consenting to any boundary becoming a limit to our compassionate disposition. So if someone, um, in our view, upsets us, we have consented right, to the boundary that they've presented that is a limit to our compassion. And I found this a very, very um, interesting idea to think about. Um, we are often triggered or reactive to what other people think or say or do. This is kind of poor self-management because why would we allow our in, inner experience, right? Our, our inner equanimity, our inner compassion, our inner loving kindness to be controlled by someone else. 
And yet we're human, you know, some people make us angry. Sometimes we get upset, um, but we should understand that when we do, we leave the abode of the gods and we scramble around uh, in our conditioning and our reactivity. And that's a less free place to be. So every time we do that, we sacrifice some of our freedom. So the training in compassion is really this kind of training. It's the training to um, recover our boundless expression of, of these qualities of loving kindness or unconditional friendliness, of deep compassion, of empathetic joy, and of equanimity, uh, that ease and being. So um, there's a kind of contentment in that, even though things may be unsettled all around us. To be able to settle in this, in the Brahma Viharas, is to be at home in this divine abode. And that's our natural resting place. So, um, so that's why uh, quite often I'll use that as the basis for starting my meditation period or a particular intensive or retreat, just the practice of the Brahma Viharas. It's extremely expansive. You open out to everything without conditions. And so we need to practice that. That's not how we normally move through the world. That's not normally how we interact with other people. But maybe you can begin to glimpse how it can be something uh, that's quite beneficial. So, um, so I'm gonna give you a, just about maybe 10 minutes of opportunity to practice these four Brahma Viharas. So I'll tell you what they are again. Um, metta, unconditional friendliness. Karuna, compassion. Mudita, empathetic joy. Upeka, equanimity. And so what I would do is in this, uh, in this little practice period, simply allow yourself to radiate that quality, starting with metta, in front of you, to the right of you, behind you, to the left of you, above you, below you, just radiating out in all directions, that quality of unconditional friendliness until you can feel yourself permeating everything and everyone with that unconditional friendliness. And when that's established, then move on to compassion. In that unconditional friendliness, we witness others suffering and our own suffering with this deep, deep compassion of abiding with the commitment to the relief of their suffering. And because that then brings joy, right? Um, then we again practice front to the right, behind to the left, above and below this quality of mudita empathetic joy. How happy we, we are when other suffering is relieved, when they are happy. And then as a result of having gone through all of these experiences of friendliness, of compassion, of empathetic joy, we arrive in this realm of equanimity, which is ease and contentment.
So this is um, uh, an opportunity to practice that just a little bit with those four qualities. Okay, does everybody feel like they can remember them? Yeah? Okay. All right, let's begin.
even though the world is burning around us, and even though people are crazy and ignorant and greedy and warlike, we can radiate these qualities. We have that responsibility. So I'm curious, what did you discover? Yeah, Maria. Yeah, I just really, that was lovely. And I just really recognized the first time I had that space, that kind of real feeling. And it was when I, um, I've been, like you said earlier, I've been practicing with the corn, don't be predictable for about a year now. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time that while practicing with that, that this space opened up in the midst of a trigger. And, you know, my, my mother was was talking about something or other or doing her thing and I was triggered and and the don't be predictable stopped me from created a space, a pause. And I was able to really kind of see, I think it should, it's more like a dump. It, it opened up a space where I could really see, you know, my conditioning and what it was I was doing and my part in that, you know, like before it was just my mother triggering me and it was her fault. And then it really opened up a space to see, you know, what my part is in that. And that space, just stopping and interrupting the conditioning and creating that space so that I could really see her, but I could really see me and all that in it. And somehow everything changes, you know, you can really see the other person more clearly because you just rest with the conditioning and sit with it at first. And it doesn't change and it's still there. Mm -hmm. But you can just rest with it and be with it and offer it compassion, loving kindness, you know, friendship. You can offer all that to yourself and then that extends out to to other. And I, it just reminded me while I was doing that, it came back, that first ever sort of real feeling of that spaciousness that is created by doing this this practice. And you wouldn't think that just a simple slogan like that, don't be predictable, would open a space. No, and it's been incredible because it's every situation I'm in, it, 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 it interrupts any conditioning or any automatic response I have. I stop and I think that's predictable, pause with it. And then it, so much more opens up, this expansive space opens up and, and you can have a different response. You can, and, but you, you see things so much more clearly. It, it's, it's quite great. incredible. It doesn't stop you having everything, <laughs> all the responses and all the, but you can really see your part in it all, which is really interesting. Yeah. And, and transformative. That That's the effect, I think, of working with a single slogan over a long period of time. Um, it starts to really work in you and open that space. Yeah. And it's the same thing, I think, with the Brahma Viharas. I love the space that opens when you realize I can always radiate these qualities, always. Um, and so I may not always be um, you know, aware of that, but it's always available. And, um, and so we may find ourselves in very difficult circumstances. I'm pretty sure we will, all of us at some point or another, um, where we imagine that our inner, our inner experience is regulated by something outside of ourselves. Um, and so that's a, 
a very big challenge is to recognize I'm responsible for that inner experience and its qualities. And in these practices, we start to open up because we're not afraid anymore. We don't have anything to protect. So when you don't, when there's no fixed, stable, solid self, there's nothing that needs protection or defending. Not a point. But it's more kind of thing, isn't it? It's more, um, it's not as obvious when the other person is outwardly horrible, mean. Of course. You think, yeah. I've no part in this. This is all them. But actually, you always have a part well, in whatever's going on with that. An impact, you know, and we... We are impacted by every encounter we have, whether it's with a leaf or with a lizard or whatever. We're impacted by that encounter. It's what we make of it, what we do with it, how we how we um, address it, meet it. That is our unique freedom, right? We do have that freedom. They are going to go right ahead and do whatever it is that they do out of their own conditioning, and we get to determine what our response will be. We get to determine, yes, it's true. You know, We may have to take some blocking actions or stopping actions if they're harming other people even. Um, so, but, there, but when that's undertaken from this place, place of the Brahma Viharas or the place of uh, unconditional friendliness, it's a very, very different thing than when it comes out of our reactivity and our conditioning. It just, it just works differently. So, yeah. Yeah. So I love these practices, not because they make us more compassionate, but because they open our compassion um, and, and we stop trying to uh, protect ourselves in quite the same way. It's because we're not in danger. They're going to do what they're going to do. You know? Um, yeah. Do you, do you know this poem, The Low Road by Marge Piercy? Hold on. I'm going to have to read it to you. I can see that. Um, I used it in the training at, in Minneapolis. So this is called the low road. What can they do to you? Whatever they want. They can set you up. They can bust you. They can break your fingers. They can burn your brain with electricity, blur you with drugs until you can't walk, can't remember. They can take your child, wall up your lover. They can do anything you can't stop them from doing. How can you stop them? Alone, you can fight, you can refuse, you can take what revenge you can, but they roll over you. But two people fighting back to back can cut through a mob. A snake dancing file can break a cordon. An army can meet an army. Two people can keep each other sane, can give support, conviction, love, massage, hope, sex. Three people are a delegation, a committee, a wedge. With four, you can play bridge and start an organization. With six, you can rent a whole house, eat a pie for dinner with no seconds, and hold a fundraising party. A dozen makes a demonstration, a hundred fill a hall, a thousand have solidarity and your own newsletter, 10,000 your own newspaper, a hundred thousand your own media, 10 million your own country. It goes on one at a time. It starts when you care to act. It starts when you do it again after they say no. It starts when you say we and know who you mean. And each day you mean one more. That's equanimity. Okay, we're, at, we're past our time, which I have 
once again, neglected to end at. But I will see you next week for our last class. And this will be on our open awareness practice in Shikantaza. So see you then. Take care of yourselves. Practice. Thank, Thank you, Peg. Thank you.